This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from comedian Lee Camp, The Majority Report, The Tom Hartman Program, Moyers and Company, The Unfuck It Up Project, Citizen Radio, and The Young Turks. And a note that this episode with stories of positive ideas and protests for change is about as happy as this show ever gets. So, soak it in. This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. It's not your fault. It's really not your fault. The United States, more than any other country, has this motto, this theme of personal responsibility, right? You often can't see it, but it's actually tattooed on the bald eagle's ass. Uncle Sam is pointing at you, saying, take responsibility. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Stand up on your own two feet. If you want your bush whacked, you got to do it yourself. I don't think that's an expression, but it should be. Roughly 28 million Americans can't find work or have stopped looking altogether. And we're told to believe that there's something wrong with 28 million Americans? Are we to believe that there's something wrong with the millions upon millions of homeowners who went into foreclosure after being tricked and deluded hustled and bamboozled into signing a subprime mortgage? Should we believe it's the fault of tens of thousands of Americans who were foreclosed upon illegally? And I guess we should believe it's the fault of the 60% of all bankrupt companies that went bankrupt due to health care bills. You add that up and apparently 60 or 70% of the American people are losers who don't even try to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They don't even try to whack their own bushes. And we're in a recovery too. And still you don't have a job? What is wrong with you? The Dow Jones just hit a record high. The big banks and the insurance companies and the oil companies are doing better than ever. So why are you swimming in coins, wiping your with dollar bills, if you had any sense in your body, if you were working hard at all, you would be doing great in this time of renewed prosperity. Doing well right now is easier than playing hide-and-go-seek with a heavy-breathing obese child. So what the f*** the matter with you? But the truth is, it's not your fault. For the past 30 years, the wealthy elite have been gutting the system, making it harder and harder to make a living while they've enriched themselves beyond anyone's wildest dreams. There are people who dream of naked leprechauns dancing in chocolate fountains while s***ing unicorns who could not dream of the amount of wealth amassed in the top 0.1%. But here's the key to the success of their heist. In order to stop you from pointing the finger at them, they had to come up with a myth, an idea, a bull motto that anyone who is struggling is doing so because they lack either motivation or personal responsibility. Personal responsibility is a code that really means blame yourselves so that the country doesn't stop to think about how system is, how rigged unfettered capitalism is, and then justifiably, logically, and rationally blame the ass-faced killers, the millionaire, tax-avoiding, greed-snorting, government-extorting who put us here and then turned around and blamed the victims. It's not your fault. You're struggling because they have pillaged the world. And if you blame yourself, it makes it that much easier for them to keep doing it.
tell us um, your argument that the Internet, essentially, uh, our capacity to go online, really should be treated like uh, a utility, basically like electricity was uh, 100 years ago. Well, thanks for the question. Um, yes, people may not know this, but electricity was considered to be a luxury 100 years ago, and 90% of farmers didn't have it, and it was controlled by uh, large trusts that had combined to control more than 85% of the electricity distribution market. Today, you can't start a new business or get a job or get a good education or get access to the most modern healthcare resources without having a wired connection to the Internet. And 83% of people who have smartphones also have wired connections. Uh, what's happened is that um, for 19 million Americans, they can't get wired access at any cost because it just isn't available where they are. A third of Americans don't subscribe to a wired home connection, many because of cost, some because they just don't understand its relevance. And compared to other countries, prices are quite high in the United States and capacity is pretty low. Um, this has all happened because over the last 10 years or so, we've completely deregulated this sector, leading to both no competition in the market for wired Internet access and, by the way, also pretty uh, low levels of competition for wireless access. Verizon and, T and AT&T really dominate that field. So no real competition and no oversight, which is uh, a terrible combination for something that Americans need, just like clean water and electricity. From a historical standpoint, I mean, just tell us what did happen with electricity, because you have this situation where um, it's obviously, in some respects, it's just simply not uh, worth it for a private entity to provide universal access. You know, those last uh, couple of miles, or in some cases, you know, back then, tens of miles were just simply not worth laying down the, uh, the, the copper, as it were, or the wire um, to deliver electricity. Just give us a notion of exactly what the U.S. government did at that time. Well, this problem operates on a few levels. So for very far-flung rural areas, the federal government back in the 20s and 30s encouraged the development of rural cooperatives that would help uh, municipalities and communities help themselves to provide electricity where the incumbents found it uneconomic to serve those areas. So for electricity in rural areas, we encourage rural cooperatives. And then in urban areas, made sure that uh, wholesale prices were regulated and that a standard for electricity was provided uh, for everybody so that we could operate all the machines and devices we want to. So fast forward, got a very similar situation now for very high-speed Internet access. Um, in most parts of the country, your only choice for a world-class wired Internet connection is your local cable monopoly, and that company isn't subject to very much oversight, if any. And for other parts of the country, they're just unserved, particularly rural areas. Um, so we've got a similar problem, an absence of competition in areas where competition is possible, and then an absence of service in areas where the companies feel it's uneconomical to go there. This is leading to a very large policy problem for the United States because everything we want to do, from climate change to uh, you know, improving health care to improving educational resources around the country, depends on having a reliable, first-rate, uh, wired Internet network around the country. The Internet. 
For porn. I got a fast connection so I don't have to wait. For porn. What? There's always some new site. For porn. I browse all day and night. For porn. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For porn. Trekkie. The internet is for porn. Trekkie. The internet is for porn. What are you doing? Why you think the net was born? Porn, porn, porn. Trekkie. Last week, Forbes came out with its annual list of the world's richest folks. And once again, the guy at the top of the list was Carlos Slim. He's worth $73 billion. Now, who the heck is Carlos Slim? And how did he get all that money? He got it by controlling the majority of Mexico's telecom industry. Richest guy in the world's a Mexican. Slim purchased Telmex, which was the state national telecommunications company, in 1990 when it was privatized. And ever since then, he's grown this Mexican telecom monopoly quite well, thank you very much. Largely in part to his abundant political connections and uh, the ability to buy politicians. He's, he's basically been able to hold, to, you know, have a stranglehold on the telco industry, uh, particularly cell phones, but also hardwired phones without asking any questions, nationwide Mexico. But it looks like maybe, this was a piece I saw in the in the uh, Financial Times yesterday that got me thinking about this. In fact, it, it basically asserted this, that maybe Carlos Slim's vast wealth could soon be taking a hit. Yesterday, the Mexican government, this is the new, the pre-party, which the, used to be the ruling party and then it wasn't and now it is again, uh, this uh, the Mexican government announced a sweeping new proposal to crack down on telecom monopolies and tycoons like Carlos Slim. Believe it or not, this is this is like the U.S. government going after Bill Gates, right? This bill, which is part of Mexico's most ambitious economic reform package in a generation, their phrase, not mine would establish a telecom industry regulator who would have a wide array of powers to curb companies' control of markets. Now, why would you do that? Because it opens room for competition. Thanks to Slim's Mexican telecom monopoly, competition in that marketplace has been basically killed, which drives up the prices of you know phone and Internet services for Mexican consumers. American, America Mobile is Slim's Pan-American telecom provider. Control 70% of the cell phone market in Mexico. Sort of like, you know, AT&T, Verizon. Mm. Anyhow, under the new proposal, the regulating body of the telecom industry could classify any company with more than half of the market share as a so-called dominant company. That's their phrase, dominant. And dominant companies would then be subjected to a variety of sanctions, fines, pricing regulations, and they could even be forced to sell off their assets. In other words, they're breaking them up, just like we broke up AT&T. Why is it happening now? Why have the lawmakers in Mexico finally decided that they're going to chip away at Carlos Slim's empire? Well, it's pretty simple. The Mexican people, and by extension the Mexican government, has realized that libertarian capitalism, left unchecked, 
always leads to monopoly. Carlos Slim's telecom takeover was left unchecked, and he ended up gaining a virtual monopoly on the industry at the expense of the Mexican people. Unfortunately, here in the United States, we've allowed our telecom industry to also turn into a virtual monopoly, really more of a duopoly with AT&T and Verizon having a stranglehold on our market. And as a result of that, Americans are being squeezed dry when it comes to our cell phone plans. Looked at your phone bill recently? With AT&T, a cell phone plan with unlimited minutes and unlimited text and 5 gigs of data costs 140 bucks a month. On Verizon, it's about 130 bucks a month. Now, on the other side of the Atlantic, over in Europe, they figured this thing out, and they said, you know, we're not going to have monopolies. They enforced the European version of the Sherman Antitrust Act. The EU has very, very strong antitrust policies. And as a result, there's plenty of competition in the cellular market in Europe, which means lower costs for the consumer. For example, in the U.K., a plan comparable to the AT&T Verizon plans that I just laid out would cost, you know, the AT&T Verizon plans would cost well over 100 bucks. That's a, a little under $70, $60 and change on Orange, which is one of Europe's larger cell phone providers. And even if you were to increase the amount of data in your plan on Orange, you'd still be paying less than AT&T or Verizon. And on continental Europe, the cost could be as low as $20 a month. As of 2009, American cell phone customers paid, on average, $635 a year for service. It's a year per year, 635 Compare that with the Netherlands and Finland, where it's $131 a year. It's like 15 bucks a month. $137 a year in Sweden. In France, the average citizen pays $33 a month for what the New York Times described as, and I quote, Internet service twice as fast as what you get on Verizon or Comcast, bundled with digital high-definition television, unlimited long distance, and international calling to 70 countries, and wireless Internet connectivity for your laptop or smartphone throughout most of the country. $33 a month. So Europe caught on to, mon to monopolies in the telecom industry, and they did something about it. And now Mexico is trying to do the same thing to help ensure competition in the marketplace and lower prices for consumers, which to me sounds like a reasonable thing, right? I mean, is it about time we did this? I am so sick and tired of spending hundreds of dollars on cell phone service. I mean, between Louise and me, and we've just got a simple plan, you know, with with uh, five gigs of data, you know, enough so that you can use your phone as a as a hotspot when you're traveling, and it's it's a couple hundred dollars a month. That's insane. We would be paying. For the two of us, we'd be paying $70 a month if we lived in France. Or less if we lived in Germany. I mean, when dozens of nations throughout the developed world are paying less. Richard Nixon used the Sherman Antitrust Act to break up AT&T's bell system into seven different companies known as the Baby Bells. It, it ended up, you know, it ended up really happening under the Carter and early Reagan administration, but... This left the market open for new players to jump in. You had MCI and Sprint. These companies just came out of nowhere. And when AT&T was broken up, in the end, it was good for everybody because, you know, if you own stock in AT&T and now you own stock in these seven companies, you know, these six baby Bells and Bell Labs, which became was renamed as, uh, you know, whatever it was renamed as, um, 
their value tripled. You made a lot of money on that stock. But then came Reagan, and he functionally stopped enforcing the Sherman Act. The monopolies and the oligopolies, the duopolies, the triopolies began to return with the M&A mania in the 1980s. Remember that? And the baby bells that have been successfully broken up, they started getting back together again. If we were to give the telecom and Internet oligopolies the same treatment today that Richard Nixon gave AT&T in the 1970s, then maybe Americans could enjoy the same super-fast Internet speeds and super-cheap rates that most of the rest of the developed world enjoys and that Mexico is trying to grab hold of right now. It's time to break up the telecom industry once again, and this time make sure it sticks. It is insane that you have a choice of two cell phone providers or three cell phone providers. And in a lot of areas, the coverage is so bad. It's basically one cell phone provider when you can go to uh, even the rural parts of Europe and pick from 30 or 40. Why is that? Because even though one company may own the towers, multiple companies can carry their signals on those towers. The technology is straightforward. They pay rent. You know, it's not like they're getting a free ride. But guess what? You have competition. And in capitalism, in, in libertarian capitalism, the one thing that companies will always try to do is destroy competition. And they've done it here in the United States. And they did it in Mexico. How would you like to be able to read books and periodicals without the need for tree-killing paper, the actual ability to read, or having to pay a giant corporation for the pleasure? I sure would, but I don't think that exists. Two out of three ain't bad, though, because Audible, an Amazon company, is just such a giant corporation that can make these other wishes a reality. By signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best, you'll receive a free audiobook of your choice, yours to keep even if you cancel within the 14-day free trial. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best to take something for nothing from a company who obviously didn't write the copy for this advertisement. Here's a synopsis, Richard, of a lot of similar questions that bring us to your book, Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism. A viewer who identifies himself as a longtime fan of Dr. Wolf writes, you're passionate about worker self-directed enterprises. Can you explain briefly why you think these are the way to save capitalism? Critics say your alternative may work in theory, but not in practice. My point is that workers ought to be, all of us who work in an office, a factory, or a store, ought to be in the position of participating in the decisions governing that enterprise. And I do that not only because I believe in democracy. And let me say that if you do believe in democracy, it's always been a mystery to me why that democracy that you believe in doesn't apply to the place where you work. After all, five out of seven days of every week, most of your adult life, you're at work. So if democracy is an important value, it ought to be at your job because that's where you are most of the time. And democracy at the job means the following. If you have to live with the decisions that are made in a job, what you're producing, what technology is being used, what the health conditions of your workplace are, what's done with the fruits of your labor, literally whether your factory or your office continues, since you have to live with those 
decisions, you ought to participate. The basic idea of democracy. So I like the idea of cooperative enterprises because it fulfills my value commitment to democracy. Whereas a capitalist enterprise doesn't because it keeps all the decision making in a tiny minority. We all who go to work have to live with their decisions, but we don't participate in them. Not even to speak of the community that has to live with the decisions. But the second reason is I see concrete results coming from an enterprise that was run by the workers collectively. And let me give you a few examples. First, do most of us believe that if the workers themselves made a decision that they would close the enterprise and move it to China? I don't think so. I think that the whole running away of enterprises out of the United States was made possible because the decisions to close enterprises here and to open them in another part of the world where you could get away with paying workers much less was a decision that was very good for the folks who make the decisions but not for the average workers there. So if we had decision making made by the workers in place they wouldn't undo their own jobs and they wouldn't move and that would make a very different economic system from the one we have today. Second example, although I can give you many, Bill, if you want them. When it comes to deciding what to do with the profits, suppose instead the workers themselves made that decision democratically, how do we divide the profits? You think they would give a handful of top officials wild sums of money to buy $40 million apartments on Fifth Avenue while everybody else was having to borrow money to get their kids through school? I don't think so. I think that people collectively would distribute the wealth more to some than others for all kinds of reasons, but they would do it in a much less unequal way than we have in a capitalist system. So I challenge all of those who are concerned with a more equal system, with less inequality, to come up with a better way of achieving it than having workers be in a position to make the decisions as to how we divide the profits. Because that is the single most important determinant of the inequality of income in our society. But how do you answer this viewer? In 1994, when United Airlines was on the brink of financial collapse, a deal was made creating the biggest employee-owned companies in the U.S. In 2002, the airline filed for bankruptcy. My answer is the following. It's very important. For workers to own something is one thing. For workers to become the directors of their own enterprise is something else. Worker ownership means, for example, and we have lots of examples, both in the United States and around the world, that the workers become, in a sense, shareholders. They are the technical owners. But if the workers who become owners, and I'm not against that, but if the workers who become owners don't change the way the enterprise is operated, it remains a capitalist enterprise. It still has a board of directors, a handful of people who make all the decisions. It's true that the workers may vote for who those people are, but they've left the structure of the enterprise in the old form, hierarchical, top-down. That's what was done in United Airlines. I was involved in that. I actually know. So? They called me in at a couple points to participate in some of the discussions. The International Associations of Machinists, which was the union that right. was part of that. Uh, so they left the old capitalist structure. They weren't willing to go beyond saying, we the workers become owners, but we leave the running of the enterprise, the directing of it, the day-to-day -day decisions in the old form made by the old experts. 
Part of a movement away from capitalism to a cooperative enterprise requires that the people of the United States stop believing that the folks at the top have some magical entitlement to give them that position. And I think that there has to be a change. I think most Americans have to recognize that the folks who run our, enter our enterprises, they had to learn how to do that. And we can all learn how to do that. It's the old argument, in a sense, that comes out of our history. Here's a viewer named Jeff chiming in. Dr. Wolf, can you please give a concrete, not academic or theoretical explanation of how you would apply your employee-run business model to a McDonald's, Walmart, a hospital, or J.P. Morgan Chase? Well, the answer is best given not as a hypothetical, but to describe an enterprise which is large, like all of those are, uh, which has done this. There is a film called Shift Change about yes, the cooperative efforts, and we'll provide a link to that. Well, the example I'm going to give is a company in Spain. Uh, it's called Mondragon, the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation. Uh, and a little history may interest folks. It was started in the middle of the 1950s by a Catholic priest in the north of Spain in the Basque area, just south of the Pyrenees Mountains. It was a time of terrible privation in Spain after the World War II and the Spanish Civil War, there was terrible unemployment in this area, and the Catholic priest decided that one way to deal with unemployment was not to wait for a capitalist employer to come in and hire people, but to set up cooperatives. And he began with six parishioners in his Roman Catholic Church to start a co-op. Okay, this is 1956. Let's fast forward to 2013. That corporation now has over 100,000 employees. It has been a success story of gargantuan proportions. It is a family of co-ops within this large corporation. In most of these co-ops, the workers make the decisions of how this cooperative works. So let me give you an idea of how successful they've been. They partner with Microsoft and General Motors in their research labs because Microsoft and General Motors want to tap into their creative way of running a business. They have a rule that nobody can get more than six times what the lowest paid worker in an enterprise gets. The typical situation in a major American corporation is that the top executives gets three or four hundred times what their lowest paid worker does. So they have solved the equality problem in a dramatic way for 120 roughly thousand people. Uh, there's a concrete example of how you can make a cooperative, democratically run enterprise, successful, growing, and becoming a powerful community force. Uh, there is a, a Arismendi, the name of that priest in, in Spain, there's the Arismendi bakeries, six of them in the Bay Area, that are all run as cooperatives. And they run it as a worker-directed enterprise. They've been very successful. Their commitment, number one, is not profit. Their commitment, number one, is not growth. Their commitment, number one, is to their people. Which brings me to a question from another viewer. How do you move to this alternative you're talking about and writing about without strong unions? Union membership is down to its lowest level since 1936 when Franklin Roosevelt was president. And can you do this without increased strength among unions? A union in its negotiations with an employer currently is limited, in most cases, to asking for better wages, better working conditions. 
Imagine with me for a moment what it would mean if the unions developed a new strategy. Let's call it a two-track strategy. On the one hand, you continue bargaining with your workers for better conditions from your employer. But on the other hand, you do something else. You begin to train workers to become able to run their own enterprises and to have a whole new bargaining chip when you confront an employer. Many unions over the last 30 years have been confronted by a company that basically comes and says the following. We're thinking of leaving Cincinnati, Sheboygan, uh, Detroit, whatever. Uh, we need to get some concessions from you. We won't leave if you give us wage givebacks, lower benefits, all the usual things, or else we'll leave. The union doesn't know what to do, is terrified, doesn't want to call the bluff, because not sure it is a bluff, etc., etc. So eventually the union caves. That has been the, the history over and over again. Imagine a union that had been able to say to these folks, okay, if you leave, rather than coming to a reasonable accommodation with us, we are going to set up an enterprise right here. The factory you leave, we will occupy. The jobs you don't pay us to do, we will do for ourselves. And you will be located in China, bringing goods back here, but we'll continue to produce goods here, and let's see which goods the American working people will buy. But they will need capital to do that. Yes. And the question is, where would the capital come from? And The question is, where will the capital come from? Good. The answer to where the capital come from, there are several possibilities. The first possibility is the United States government. The United States government has the money, needs to do something for our unemployment problem, and here's a way to do it. Because as the Marcora law in Italy that I mentioned earlier right. illustrates, there's a governmental and a social interest in doing this. This is a better way to solve the unemployment problem than giving people a dole for months or years at a time, during which time they lose their job connections, they often lose their skills. This is a much better solution, giving them the startup money to begin small, medium-sized enterprises that they will have a great interest in making successful because it's their future, it's their well-being that's at stake, and it's their collectively owned and operated enterprise. Well, why in the world don't we have a cooperative business administration, providing startup money and technical help so that these kinds of enterprise, particularly helping unemployed people, could begin not only to help them and to help our economy, but again, to provide that freedom of choice for Americans so we can all see how these enterprises work and make a collective decision whether we'd rather have an economy more of them than of the old capitalist type. And again, I think that the capitalists would be surprised by how many of us would choose that other route, and that would be a way to get it going. When the boss comes calling, you put us down. When the boss comes calling, you stand your ground. When the boss comes calling, don't believe their lies. When the boss comes calling, he'll take his toe. When the boss comes calling, don't you sell your soul. When the boss comes calling, we gotta organize. Let them know we gotta take the bastards down. Let them know we gotta smash them to the ground. Let them know.
Today's activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Katie Goodman and director Katie Klobusik encourage involvement over apathy by highlighting people and organizations that are doing good for their communities and the world. Today's campaign, Our Walmart. Our Walmart centers on democracy in the workplace and how that affects the entire working population. The number of workers providing services now outnumbers those producing goods by five to one. The explosion of service industry jobs means that the hourly wages of an increasing number of Americans is guided by what employers like Walmart are willing to pay their workers. Walmart is the largest employer in the U.S. with 1.4 million employees representing more than 1% of the workforce. Not only do supercenters undercut locally owned businesses, but workers everywhere make less because Walmart has set the standard. This means the organizational efforts of Walmart workers across the country affect your community and your wallet directly. If you haven't already, it's time to join their fight. Our Walmart is spearheading the efforts to raise worker wages, include employees in operational decisions, and raise the level of respect on the job. Their Facebook page, Organization United for Respect, hence OUR, is the place to join strikes, provide support to organizing workers, and spread the word about their efforts. As a secondary resource, non-Walmart employees can join with Making Change at Walmart, changewalmart.org, where the United Food and Commercial Workers are anchoring a broad coalition of small business owners, community groups, elected officials, and others who believe changing the culture at Walmart is the first step to improving conditions and pay for all workers. Visit their pages, find an action near you, and sign their declaration. If we're going to create a sustainable system within this capitalist structure, we have to build from the ground up. Links for today's campaigns will be in the show notes at all the usual places, and additional activism opportunities can be found at the Best of the Left Facebook page. If you know of, or better yet, are planning an action, you can share it there for possible use on the show. Fucked up. Could you help unfuck it up? And then say, are you really so fucking busy you can't take one fucking man to help unfuck it up? Because I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me? You know, I mentioned the FDR second bill of rights. And Tom Pawkin basically blew it off, and you know we kind of got into a discussion of I mean the minutia of his candidate for governor, but our candidacy and his his platform. But I believe that Franklin Roosevelt's Second Bill of Rights is actually really important and needs to be added to the Constitution. Now, keep in mind, a right is something that government has to put into place legislation to either protect or implement. Right? If you have if you have a right to a job, then Congress has to pass legislation that says, okay, this person doesn't have a job, can't find a job, there are no jobs, so we will hire him. So let's just, let's just go through some of these. This is uh, clip number one. This is FDR just basically setting up the concept. And this was in the year before he died. He didn't, he didn't, you know, uh, tragically, he didn't live long enough to, to really, really push this hard. But I think this was a really important point. Here's, here's his setup, clip, clip one. In our day, certain economic proofs have become accepted as self-evident. A second bill of rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, 
regardless of station or race or creed. Now, notice he said, in our day, these things have become accepted. Back in the 30s, I mean, this is, this is, Frank Lautenberg just died. Frank Lautenberg was, was a kid when Franklin Roosevelt was saying this. He was a teenager. And he got it. I mean, people of that generation who are dying off now, tragically. We don't have that wisdom, that knowledge with us anymore. But, but now, but back then, every American understood that the role of government was, and Franklin Roosevelt made it the role of government, was to guarantee certain rights. And here are some of those rights. This is the right to a job and a fair wage. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. Remunerative. Yes, sir. I love those. You know, people used to actually use big words. Remunerative is a fancy way of saying good paying job. And, uh, you know, enough to actually live on. That should be a right, not a privilege. A right. He also said that businesses should be free from monopoly. Now, again, look in any any city in America, any shopping mall, any I mean, anywhere you go, and what do you see? Small businesses? Not so much. Maybe occasionally in small town Vermont, but that's about it. What you see is monopoly or duopoly or triopoly, but you know, it's it's functionally all monopoly. And so Roosevelt said, no, we need to be free from this. We, the individual human beings, have a right, and our small business owners have a right to be free from, from monopoly. Here he is, clip four. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom, freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. Yeah, there you go. I mean, this is pretty simple stuff. Now, for some reason, Reagan thought, nah, that's, you know, we'll just do the opposite of that. And literally did. But can you imagine? This was the President of the United States saying that this is what it takes to make a free nation. Is that free people have these rights. And by the way, to the best of my knowledge, every one of these rights is considered a right in virtually every country in Europe. And, ver and you know most of the 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 fully developed countries of the world, Australia, Canada. He said that you should have a right to a place to live and to decent health care. A right, not the privilege. You know, hey, you get to live on the street. No, 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 no. A right to home and health care. Here's here he is. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. And Roosevelt actually made the former happen. I mean, you know, he 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 backstopped mortgages. They they there's a massive mortgage failure disaster going on in 1932 when he came into office because they'd been selling all these five year the the standard mortgage in the 20s during the Republican administrations of Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover. From 1920 to, to, to 1932, the standard mortgage was a five-year mortgage with a balloon at the end. 
And But housing prices have been going up so fast from 1920 to 29. It was a bubble. The people would do that. They'd buy it. They'd have the five-year balloon. And then when the balloon got hit, they'd just roll it over. They'd, you know, but, but all of a sudden, after the crash of 29, you couldn't roll it over. So the, all these people who were stuck with these mortgages. So FDR created a federal agency that bought these five-year mortgages and turned them into 30-year fixed-rate, low-interest mortgages guaranteed by the federal government. That program wound itself up in the 60s or 70s and actually showed a profit to the government. In addition to saving homeowners, he didn't bail out banksters. He bailed out homeowners. So we talked about the right to a fair job. He had a thing for farmers. There's not so much farmers anymore. He had business uh, free from monopoly, home and health care. Here's uh, clip number six. This is FDR about the social safety net. Here you go. Right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. Old age, sickness, accidents, and unemployment. That's that's quite literally a social safety net. And uh, number seven, good education. This is fascinating. This is clip number the seven. The right to a good education. Yeah. Pretty straightforward, right? But everybody should have the right to it. Not, not the privilege, not if you're born into the wealthy family, not if you're, not if, you know, like George W. Bush, not if your dad was a Yale alumni uh, or alumnus or whatever, uh, but, but uh, actually a good education. And, and he went on to say that this is going to mean, if we do this, this will mean security and peace. This is Franklin Roosevelt. All of these rights spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. I agree. I would I absolutely agree. In fact, I would say one of the things that drives the neocons and the warmongers is the lack of security at home. People are, are experiencing free-floating anxiety, fear. They're, they're you know three paychecks away from the poor house. They're one bad doctor's visit away from bankruptcy, and they know it. From being homeless, from being, you know, whatever it may be, from, from having their having Mitt Romney ship their company to some other country. And people know it. And they're frightened by it. You will feel their stitches pull when you go This program can only do what it does because of the members who support the show for as little as $5 a month. And as thanks for the support, members now get access to bonus content, including additional voicemails and clips that didn't fit in the big show, and additional stories and discussion topics from me. Plus, I've organized a full archive of the show, including a curated selection of my favorite past episodes, as well as a collection of my absolute favorite radio clips from all sorts of places. All that now available only to members. If you're already a member and want access to all this great content, draw me an email at j at bestoftheleft.com so I can get you set up. And if you're not yet a member, you can sign up now at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. This next story is pretty cool, and it potentially sets a, a very interesting precedent for the rest of the country. A federal district court judge ruled Thursday that Fox Searchlight Pictures violated federal and New York minimum wage laws by not paying production interns on the film Black Swan, a decision that could have broad implications for industries that have long relied on the work of unpaid interns. 
The judge, according to the New York Times, said the interns should have been paid because they were essentially regular employees. The internship, Judge Williams H. Pauley III determined, did not foster an educational environment, and the company simply reaped the benefit of the intern's work. He called for companies to follow the criteria for unpaid internships already delineated by the Department of Labor, which in part states that the work must not be of immediate advantage to the employer and must be similar to, uh, in nature to vocational training. But what's really interesting about that wording is that the work must not, must not be of immediate advantage to the employer. What unpaid inter- internship do you know of that isn't of immediate advantage to the employer? That is a very difficult argument to make. Like, if you look at something like Huffington Post, the unpaid workers for Huffington Post all contribute to the value of Huffington Post. Yeah. And ultimately, the wallet of Ariana Huffington. Now, I wanted to tell you what Maryland is doing. Uh, this is just the coolest thing. Maryland has come up with what they call the Genuine Progress Indicator. Now, this is a variation on the Gross National Happiness Index, which is a variation on what uh, the King of Bhutan has been using for his nation, the GNH. And uh, that's got a whole bunch, you know, that, that has psychological well-being, health, time use, education, cultural diversity and resilience, good governance, community vitality, ecological diversity and resilience, and living standards. But this is, this, this one, Maryland is actually apparently going to put into place. He just, uh, Governor Mal- O'Malley, the Democratic governor of Maryland, uh, just described the limitations of traditional GDP. In fact, Shano, you've got a clip of Bobby Kennedy, RFK, back in the day, talking about GDP. And it just brilliantly illustrates the problems with using productivity or gross domestic product as the only way that you look at an economy. And we've been doing that now for eh, about the 100 years or so that we've been seriously having you know, economists and maybe not even a hundred years, but it's been, you know, within the last hundred years that we've been looking at economic things, creating economic models, trying to figure out how to make an economy that works. And what we came up with was uh, what used to be called uh, uh, gross domestic product or gross uh, GDP. Um, G- yeah, it was gross national product before that. And I think, in fact, I think Bobby Kennedy refers to it as GNP. And what gross national product is, is basically the sum of all the purchases, all the economic transactions happening. You know, things being bought and sold. And, you know, wages being paid and, and, and bonuses being paid and, and dividends and all that kind of, that's all GNP or GDP. And so the problem with that is if you have a forest fire and you have to spend 30 million bucks putting it out, you know, a state, that's considered $30 million worth of economic activity. GNP is all considered positive, right? Let's have GNP grow. And here's, here's what uh, Robert F. Kennedy had to say about it. 
back in, I believe this was 67, as I recall. I don't know for sure the year, but um, I'm pretty sure this was 67, the year before he was assassinated. Here he is. Too much and for too long, we seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community value in the mere accumulation of material things. Our gross national product now is over $800 billion a year. But that gross national product, if we judge the United States of America by that, that gross national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwoods and the loss of our natural wonder in chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm, and it counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. It counts Whitman's rifle and Speck's knife and the television programs which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry, or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America, except why we are proud that we are Americans. So that was, you know, one of the most brilliant speeches. I mean, Bobby Kennedy gave a lot of brilliant speeches, but that's that was right up there. And it's, it's uh, rightly one of his most famous. And he identified this problem with gross national product, what's now called gross domestic product. And... So Maryland is going to do something about this. They're going to say we're not going to measure, you know, uh, Whitman's rifle or Speck's knife or vice versa, whichever it was. They were, you know, a couple of mass killers of their day. Uh, we're not going to, you know, we're, or at least we're going to measure those things, but we're going to measure them as negatives rather than as positives. We're going to measure the nuclear weapons and the napalm as negatives rather than positives. And so here, here's how they're putting this thing together. They take personal consumption expenditures and then they adjust that for income inequality. So that modifies it, reduces it. You know, the more inequality, the more it reduces it. And then they add in services of consumer durables. In other words, that's a good thing. People are repairing things. And then they take out the cost of consumer durables and take out the cost of underemployment, add in net capital investment, and then they take out the following. These are things that now become negatives. That up until this point we have been we have been counting as positives, and so have really in our tax code and the way we do business has has essentially encouraged. These will now become negatives in the state of Maryland. Cost of water pollution, air pollution, noise pollution, net wetland change, net farmland change, net forest cover change, climate change, ozone depletion, non-renewable energy resource de depletion. Now, that's kind of in the environmental area. They're going to subtract all those negatives. Then they're going to add in the positive value of homework, volunteer time, higher education, and services of highways and streets, and deduct out 
the cost of family change, the cost of crime, the cost of personal pollution abatement, the cost of lost leisure time, the cost of commuting, and the cost of motor vehicle crashes. And when you do the math on all that, what you end up with is what they call the genuine process indicator, the GPI. This is a great step forward. This is like a really good positive thing. And the, uh, the governor, uh, Governor O'Malley, he said, no one benchmark, no one measure, no one indicator paints a full picture of a city, state, or country's progress. He says, our country's GDP has doubled over the last three decades. And you just heard Bobby Kennedy say it's $800 billion. That was 1967. It's $15 trillion now. It was just, you know, it was eight-tenths of one trillion back then. He said, so O'Malley says, yet things like income inequality, middle-class opportunity, the amount of poisonous carbon pumped into our atmosphere... Uh, these graphs are, are not moving in the right direction. GDP tells us what we are producing, the governor said, but it totally neglects what we are using up. There is a difference between income, which is fleeting, and wealth, which is lasting. Brilliantly said. My wealth comes to me. There have been numerous protests taking place in Brazil in a, as many as eight cities. And the protests have to do with the fact that uh, people are being taxed. However, their social services are being put in jeopardy. Uh, they're not being represented properly. Uh, some people are reporting that these Brazilians are protesting because of the fact that their public transportation fare has been increased. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. They're frustrated with the fact that there's government corruption, much like we have here in the United States. And they're taking to the streets, and they're taking to the streets in uh, large numbers. So you can see how massive these uh, protests have become. They're taking place in, in at least eight big cities with about 240,000 people taking part nationwide. And, uh, of course, several dozen uh, have been reported injured in Rio de Janeiro and uh, Belo Horizonte, if I'm saying that right, which is unlikely. Um, and... And any time that you have these kind of mass protests, it's nearly impossible to not have some people injured. But in, uh, here's a couple of important things about that. The, every report I've seen uh, indicates the great majority of the protesters were peaceful. Uh, there were some clashes with the police. But what's interesting is that last week when the protests began, the clashes were much worse, uh, right. apparently. And that's because the police... Uh, overreacted as they did in Turkey and as they do here in the U.S. with the Occupy movement, etc. And this week, when the police apparently scaled it back a little bit, uh, things were far more peaceful and what went much smoother. Now, they're frustrated because of the fact that uh, a huge amount of money is being spent on the World Cup and also the 2016 
Olympics and you know at the same time I have a friend that lives in Brazil and she was telling me that you know if you're making minimum wage in Brazil and you don't have a car you're in a world of trouble as much as one-fifth at least she claims that one-fifth of her salary is now going toward public transportation which is ridiculous um, and, and she's saying that it's really hard to get around the public transportation is now becoming inefficient because of the fact that there are so many people living in Brazil it's uh, overpopulated and they don't have um, you know public transportation going to certain routes that people need so they would much rather see their tax dollars spent on something like that as opposed to something like the World Cup or the 2016 Olympics now uh, one protester said the following um, we're massacred by the government's taxes yet when we leave home in the morning to get to work we don't know if we'll make it home alive because of the violence that's another thing that they've been very upset about we don't have good schools for our kids she continues our hospitals are in awful shape corruption is rife these protests will make history and wake our politicians up to the fact that we're not taking it anymore I think it's the universal frustration that we all have that somehow uh, we're not the ones that the government is serving Right. Whether it's Brazil, it's the U.S., it's Turkey, uh, some people are being served. Whether it's a mall being put up in Toxum, you know, near Toxum Square, and somebody's going to make money off of that. Whether it's the banks that absolutely control uh, U.S. and its politics here, or it's Brazil where they pay, you know, a lot of taxes, and then it turns out it doesn't go to them, and they still get the rate hikes on the buses that they can't afford, and it doesn't go to their health, it doesn't go to their schools. Then they're like, "What's it for?" And they're worried that uh, the governments are not on our side. Kyle from Cleveland, just listened to the last podcast, excellent by the way, and I was calling uh, in reply to Robert from Richmond who said that white uh, privilege was akin to, orig to original sin, explaining why he was tired of hearing about it or saying that, you know, we shouldn't be putting that much light on it. There's one blatantly obvious difference that, you know, he seems to be not talking about. Original sin is based on a belief in a God that may or may not exist, and a book that was full of things that was written, not by him, but what people say he said. Slavery in this country, you don't have the option to want to believe in it or not. It's history. It's true. It happened. The system in this country today is inherently set up racistly, that it is harder for minorities to get along. To believe in that isn't a luxury or an option. It's, it is the only option. It is historically true and it is a fact. I can understand what he's saying about <clears throat> not wanting to feel the shame or the guilt. Unfortunately, white guilt, for the most part, comes hand in hand with white privilege. And uh, it would be great to not have to worry about it, to not have it. And every person who truly isn't a racist, every person who is an ally for racial struggles shouldn't be having any uh, white shame or white guilt. I mean, history is what it is. And most minorities that I talk to, I have no problems with. They have no problems with me. And it's just, you know what? As human beings, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, 
We're all responsible for what we've done, not who we are. I myself didn't own slaves. In fact, my ancestors didn't own slaves. They were abolitionists. And uh, that's besides the point. The whole point is, as long as you're not a racist, you shouldn't have the guilt. What happened, happened. Live with it. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. And this is mostly concerning the NSA wiretapping, but it concerns a lot of other issues as well. Nuance is highly overrated in discussions of constitutional rights. Our government at every level is granted explicit powers that they can do, and that's it. And they're also given prohibitions specifically limiting those powers. When we discuss the merits of collecting data on every American citizen, we lose. They are specifically, by the Fourth Amendment, not empowered to do so. If people think that that is a legitimate thing to be doing, if they think that the wiretapping of all Americans is something that should be allowed, they need to change the Constitution. If people think gun control, sorry, if gun control is your idea of a way to fix things, you need to amend the Constitution. As long as we continue to have this squishy definition of what the Constitution says you can do and says you cannot do, and we discuss it as in, you know, gays can have rights because their weddings will make money, I, I don't need to make that argument. The argument is the government does not have the freedom to discriminate against gays, period. End of story. I don't have to sell it to you, just like I don't have to sell why I should be able to buy a gun or why... You know, why you should be able to be a Scientologist. It doesn't matter, even if you came with perfect evidence that banning Scientology would save America. Then we better hurry up and get that constitutional amendment to empower our government. In the meantime, it's off limits. And in, until we discuss it that way, until we demand it that way, until some folks get tarred and feathered for breaking those rules, we're going to continue to have transgressions of our rights. Thanks. Have a nice day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I sort of want to follow up on what Nathan was saying about nuance being overrated. He was saying in particularly when uh, talking about constitutional issues. And, you know, if you listen to the show, you, you might remember or know that I'm sort of a, a big fan of nuance. So this this will be interesting. And so uh, the example I'm going to use is a, a story that's been talked about sort of over and over again over the past several episodes, but I'm going to get to a new conclusion at the end. So, you know, I, I just have to repeat everything to catch everyone up. So there was a, an anti-abortion protest on a college campus. People were holding up the signs of the aborted fetuses as they are wont to do. A professor comes along and is offended by the protest and, and the you know images being shown and begins swearing. And because the woman is swearing, she's then taken away by the police. And you know they are saying that she's being offensive and profane. And she says, ah, I'm being profane. You're being profane with those images you have. And so that, that was the story. And then a caller calls into this show and asks, what's offensive about the truth anyways? You know, the, the, the truth is, you know, some, those fetuses were aborted. That's what they looked like after they were aborted. Pictures were taken. So it's true. So what's offensive about the truth? And my answer 
was, you know, honestly, I, I didn't have the fullest grasp of why I was saying what I was saying. I believed what I was saying, and I, I, I still think I was right, but, but I didn't, you know, I hadn't thought, you know, I have had a couple more weeks to think about it since then. And so listen to what I, you know, the first thing I said in response to that question. Uh, so first of all, why were the images of, of aborted fetuses at a pro-life rally considered offensive? And I, you know, honestly, I think that offensive is not the right word to use in this discussion because it's, that's more of a subjective word rather than objective. So I will, I will readily admit that at the time I didn't know exactly why my instinct was to try to move away from the word offense and, and have that not be the focus of the discussion, you know, but then went on to, to explain that like, well, I mean, what's wrong with the images is that sometimes they're, you know, misleading or they're of late term abortions, which aren't even legal anyways, uh, you know, or that they, they sort of play on people's emotions by trying to, uh, you know, show show people something that said, you know, is implicitly saying, if you knew the truth, then you would be against abortion uh, also, which could be offensive to people who think like, hey, like I know what's going on and I still am in favor of it being a choice because it's not about whether or not, you know, it, it's good or bad. It, it's, you know, it's about women's rights, right? And so then I got this email from John bringing another element to the story. And John says, your comments about graphic abortion pictures being insulting to women as not realizing what they are doing got me thinking. Do you also think that graphic wartime violence images are insulting to Americans because it implies that we don't realize the horrors of war? Or don't you think that such pictures can be valuable in bringing home to us the hideous results of warfare, which otherwise we might simply turn a blind eye to? And so this got me thinking a lot and uh, ended up with, you know, my girlfriend and I had like an hour long conversation on this topic, comparing the two sets of images and, you know, whether they're offensive or not, and what does it mean to be offensive and so on and so on. And, you know, the deeper the conversation went, the more I kept coming back to my original instinct was that offense is simply not what matters here. This is a, an example, sort of similar, not the same, but similar to what Nathan was saying about nuance. Nuance was overrated in this conversation. We were trying to nuance to death the difference between the, the pictures to figure out whether or not they were offensive when you, you have to take a giant step back and realize that's not the point at all anyways. And so I felt like, you know, I, I had a little bit of a breakthrough when I, I thought of a pretty good, not perfect, obviously, but a pretty good mirror image analogy to a, a pro-choice, uh, you know, intelligent woman being offended at images of aborted fetuses when I thought, what if there's a very staunchly pro-war soldier home on leave who then sees at a protest images of war violence? You know, they could think like, hey, like, I, yeah, I've seen it. I've smelled it. I've touched it. I've lived it. You're not teaching me anything with those images and, you know, they could potentially take offense at, at you know, the insulting their intelligence by assuming, hey, if you knew what war was really like, then you'd be against it. And he'd say, no, like, I know what it's like and I'm in favor of it because it's not about whether it's good or bad. It's about, you know, the greater good of, of the, the great things war will do, which I don't agree with generally, but, you know, that's what a, a pro-war uh, supporter might say. And so in the end, you know, offense is in the eye of the beholder, and that's not really what makes them right or wrong, and it's not the point at all. 
So in my original answer, I was sort of explaining why someone could take offense, but you could easily explain why someone could take offense to, you know, anti-war, uh, you know, war violence images, but that's not what makes them right or wrong. So anyways, so the point of all this is I, I just, I've done this a couple of times recently, not on the show, but like I, this example and, and a couple others just in my life where I go through this sort of mental exercise of stripping away all of the sort of nuance, uh, all of the extra, you know, ideas that people throw out there. You know, Nathan's example was the idea that gay marriage should be allowed because it would be good for the economy because all the gay people would get married and, you know, buy everything that goes along with weddings. And, like, that's obviously not a foundational reason to be in favor of gay marriage. And so I, I like to, you know, although some of that extraneous peripheral stuff can be potentially useful sometimes, maybe just fun, uh, but but to strip it all away and get down to the absolute bedrock core of why we believe what we believe is, I think, the best way to make sure we're standing on a solid foundation that we can't be rocked from when we make our arguments, you know, whatever argument that happens to be. And so, and it's not always easy because it's those peripheral issues can sort of cloud the, you know, the whole perspective. And so when we start talking about our images of fetuses or, or war offensive, then you you, you can go down that road, having that conversation for a really long time before you realize you're having the wrong conversation. So anyways, my advice, if, if it wasn't clear, which I don't think it was at all, uh, is make sure you're having the right conversation, get to the foundation of why you believe what you believe, and then you'll never lose another argument again. And, and if it turns out that you don't have a good foundation for what you believe, then you might want to think about changing your mind. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you're not already subscribed to the show, there's lots of ways to do it. Please uh, you know, do one of them so you make sure to get every single episode. You can subscribe in iTunes. You can use the standard RSS feed. Just subscribe however you want. And there are smartphone apps that uh, all the kids are using these days. Stitcher is very popular. And Best of the Left actually has an app uh, all to itself made for iPhone and Android. So check those out. Uh, thanks also and especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program's survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained